This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I want to thank our sponsors over at OncoSpark for designing a platform that streamlines and standardizes the authorization process. As we know, the barriers for practices and patients due to prior authorizations are a clinical and a clerical issue. This new tool, AuthParency, optimizes staff and resources while decreasing the time that a patient must wait. This platform will seamlessly integrate with your practice management system and your electronic health record alerting you to expiring authorizations or order changes. Authparency's reports can also be used for internal development as well as payer and pharma accountability. Direct insurance verification and specialty pharmacy hub enrollment are standard modules in the platform too. So jump on over to oncospark.com. That's www.oncospark.com and look at their technology solutions. We're also going to put the information in our show notes. Schedule your demo for AuthParency today and get started with this amazing tool. Welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast series, brought to you by Ozark Institute, an initiative of OncoSpark, a technology-enabled revenue cycle management company, discussing your life as a medical coder, Offering tips and advice for coding students and professionals. Join us every Wednesday. Hello and welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast. My name is Jennifer McNamara and I am your host today. Our goal is to bring you timely industry topics in the field of health information management, as well as tips for work-life balance. If you're a first-time listener, we thank you for listening today. And if you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button or follow us wherever you get your podcasts. I want to thank our special sponsors at Ozark Institute, an initiative of OncoSpark. OncoSpark is a technology-enabled revenue cycle management company. Well, I hope everyone's been enjoying our first two episodes, digging into this topic of the behavioral health crisis. It's something that means so much to me, uh, dealing with mental health myself and those that I've been close to, and seeing how this pandemic has really changed the face of how we viewed mental health prior to the pandemic, all the different changes we've seen in people and their lives and their relationships. I wanted to come on and and talk about this, but more than that, I wanted to get the clinical side of this, because as a medical professional on the business side, uh, it's really important that we understand the clinical aspects of what we're coding abstracting the data for reimbursement. And the more we come to terms with the clinical side and have that relationship we build with our providers and those on the clinical staff and work together as a team, we can really focus on what we're all here for, and that is patient care, isn't it? So for episode 12, I decided it was a great idea to have a clinical professional come on the show 
And so I have the great honor of interviewing Paul Stiesley. Paul Stiesley is a psychotherapist and consultant. I wanted to bring him on the show today because as a risk adjustment coder or a coder who has to understand ICD-10 guidelines and how to abstract those, it's important to understand the clinical aspects of some of the conditions that we abstract. And so we decided to talk about personality disorders today. Paul Sheasley has an amazing career in the practice of psychology and psychotherapy. And so we will put his uh, bio in our show notes for you to review. And I do encourage you to check out his website and some of the articles that he's written on mental health. So stay tuned for my interview with Paul Sheasley. The team at OncoSpark offers a unique opportunity to grow your career in the business of medicine through their virtual specialty conference series. The reality of attending conferences in person is constantly changing. We give you the opportunity to learn virtually from industry leaders in top specialties, such as obstetrics and gynecology, pediatrics, cardiology, oncology, and orthopedics. We present timely industry topics to help you navigate regulatory guidelines, best practices and coding, billing, and practice management from the experts in the field. Whether you are interested in becoming the go-to expert in your field, provide additional knowledge for your education program, or you're ready to dive into other specialties, we have you covered. We hope to see you at our 2022 events. Well, as I mentioned, I have my very special guest, Paul Sheasley. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks. Thank you for having me. It's um, an honor to be here and looking forward to the to the cast today. Yes, yes. Well, we've been waiting for you, honestly, like this four part series. I've been waiting so I can finally have a professional a clinical professional talk about these mental health disorders, uh, but also just the approach to treating people who have issues mentally and or just emotionally. Right. That's what we, we think about. Uh, let me ask you, first of all, how long have you been practicing medicine or your field of, of, of study? You know, it's, a, it's actually a fun answer. Um, so I have been in the field of psychology since 2002. Um, and that goes significantly back in terms of just my interest, even beginning in like in, in, in education in terms of like high school. And so um, it's, it's a field that I've been interested in since then. And I have always been in some capacity working within a patient based facility or uh, and clients or research. And so I estimated probably somewhere around 37,000 direct patient hours over my career. That is amazing. Oh my goodness. Well, you have a lot of experience and a lot of, you know, uh, probably things you can share with, with our audience about helping people in this area. Um, and so let me just ask you, what areas of mental health do you specialize in currently? So current, well, that's, that's, I'm glad you threw in currently because I was ready to give it to you um, in terms of all the different areas. So currently, um, I specialize um, with, with uh, personality disorders, for example. Um, you know, some of my other primary facets of care include addictions, uh, whether it's chemical or behavioral, um, and of course, mood disorders. And if we were to do some other populations there. I work specifically with like individuals. I work in the marital couple and the family uh, units as well. Okay, great. Yes. Well, we've talked previously when we were preparing to decide what to talk about with you today. And we did decide, of course, to focus on that area of personality disorders. 
in my previous episodes for the series, we had talked about how sometimes personality disorders, not that they're, you know, maybe not labeled as much, but some of the things we deal with, with our um, emotions and things that our experiences we've had can affect our work and then our home life. And then sometimes vice versa. So what do you find people misunderstand about, for instance, the definition of a disorder versus a trait? Because I know those can be intertwined when it comes to the personality. Oh, absolutely. So traits and disordered, right? So it's easy to understand that when something is a disorder, I mean, essentially is that, is that there is a disorder in one's life in many dimensions or even one significant dimension. And so when looking at it from a, a more like a purely clinical sense, we look at these different dimensions of life, whether it's education or occupation and career, you know, family, self, um, and even physical. And we, we look at these disorders and we go, okay, is this affecting any one of those major dimensions of life to which it's then classified as disordered? Um, people can have all kinds of different character traits. Now, whether or not they create a disorder in one's life, it's really dependent on that person and, and obviously their environment. Um, you know, sometimes we have these traits that are actually quite healthy for us and these traits that are persistent and they actually allow for us to even be successful or bring joy into our lives. And sometimes those same traits can, you know, be the double-edged sword as they say and kind of create chaos as well. And then, and then which case we would be talking about them as a, as a disorder. It makes sense. It really does. And I love hearing your, your thoughts on that because sometimes it can, um, and we, like, I know we've talked about this, trying not to label people, but we do want to understand the difference because we don't want to label it the wrong way. <laughs> Definitely. Um, well, yes. And have to take a look at it in terms of the unique lifestyle and the unique, the person as a unique entity, because you know, when we look at a disorder, we're looking at enduring patterns. So these patterns are persistent um, and they may have gotten worse over time. Um, and how they've gotten worse over time is something that we take a look at when we, we consider something to be disordered. I understand that. That's so great. Well, I want to shift a little bit. And I know we talked about this specific one and I've seen, you know, you probably have seen it too, working with, you know, high profile individuals like you do and just the social media aspect, how people are labeled, <laughs> different different stigmas out there in society. This condition or disorder called narcissism that is identified mm -hmm. as a disorder, right? And we actually have a code for it in ICD-10. We have a code for it. It gets grouped into the personality disorders. But I really want to yeah. understand from a clinical standpoint, I want my audience, people that code for this or have to document this to understand from a clinical standpoint so we can understand it better. So how would you describe it? You know, and it's such an interesting concept these days and, and um, really label too. And it's one to be careful with because taking a look at even just social media, it's, it's one of the, it's a buzzword, you know, it's like, oh, you know, my, even used in a context of relationships, you know, my partner's narcissistic or my colleague's narcissistic or, you know, oh, there's such this and, you know, I think they're narcissistic and, you know, it's, it's, it's actually more, seems to be more trendy these days mm -hmm. in labeling, um, you know, I'm really just kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? Just, just unhappiness in other relationships with, with involving other people that, you know, maybe their character is something that doesn't quite fit into our mold or something that we don't like, especially with social media, you know, just being a therapist and being on social media myself and having personal social media 
you know, watching others use that, that terminology and that disorder as a way to describe maybe a failed relationship with a partner, et cetera. Um, and so there is a lot of responsibility around it. Um, and so, you know, for you know, having a, a understanding of what that looks like, you know, re really needs to come from a clinician, you know, because narcissistic personality disorder, you know, is, is characterized and there are certain enduring patterns, right? There are certain enduring patterns of like what's classified as grandiose beliefs or arrogant behavior. Um, and there's an, typically an overwhelming need for admiration from others and a lack of empathy and even exploitation of other people. Um, you know, generally this disorder, these individuals may exhibit some um, in kind of like self-love or egocentrism, meaning that it's kind of the me, me, me effect. It's all about me. And there's many different types of self-centered egocentrism that can occur. A grant, and there's often an exhibitionism type of presentation, and that's kind of the classic one that you might see in your movies, where they show up in their, you know, their twelve thousand dollar Gucci suit or their alligator shoes, and, uh, and but typically there is an excessive need for attention, and there's ultimately a, a sensitivity to criticism, and so there's and there's also different types of narcissism, and they all carry different traits and origins. It's very, very interesting. And I just, I think it's so important that we get this from a, a licensed clinician because you don't want to go around labeling people, you know, just calling it what it is. Like you said, it's a trendy topic because there are, I'm assuming treatments out there or therapies that can help people that have this, what is actually classified as a disorder by a clinician. Um, yeah. So yeah. what, when you, when you're talking to someone or you're kind of exploring what you can do to help them, what are some of the therapies that you would employ for someone that is diagnosed or that you would classify as this? Yeah. Interestingly, the, I never, it's interesting to say this now that I'm thinking out aloud with you is that most people don't show up with a diagnosis of narcissistic personality. Right. Um, in, it, it's, 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 it seems to be more of something that I discover in session with them. Now, if I'm doing couples or marital therapy, so they may come in and the partner may come in and go, well, my partner's narcissistic. You know, I think they're narcissistic, which can talk to me and resonate with different traits, different maybe stubbornness or some sort of personality traits that they find them to be self-centered and selfish. Now, it, like, for example, entitlement is different from narcissism in and of itself, pure entitlement. Selfishness is different than pure, like, I'd say, like narcissism. And so, you know, it's really the identifier, which is really the, the big part in the process is being able to have a trained eye and looking at these different types of narcissists and what their traits are and what their background is. And to be, because it, it's a, it's not an endearing term. And Oftentimes you don't call a narcissist a narcissist. You, you explain right. it in a way that they can, they can, you, in a way that's a little more leverage of like, hey, you know what? I'm so glad that you're here, you know, and thanks for staying because you start to label like a narcissist and they're going to take off or they're going to think yeah. you're a terrible therapist. <laughs> so there's lots of different styles and modes that, you know, we can use for the treatment. One of them specifically that I utilize in the treatment of 
uh, personality disorder, especially in talking about like borderline personality disorder, but also narcissistic P or NPD um, is schema therapy. Um, and so I found that therapy to be quite effective, actually very effective, empirically researched. Um, and, um, you know, the other typical, you know, the gold standard methods of like cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, some of these other therapies seem to, um, you know, just not quite have the effect that the schema therapy will have working with individuals of MPD or BPD. Okay, that totally makes sense. And I, I like it coming from that aspect too, because, you know, I wouldn't imagine either that somebody would just walk in and I say, I need treatment for narcissism. Like, it doesn't seem like it would happen that way. Um, but I, I would imagine, yeah, you're talking to someone or you're, like you're in a group session and you just identify it. But I, mm -hmm. I imagine, like you said, you wouldn't just come out and say it. That makes total sense. And you have to come at it from that approach, I would think, because of the nature of what they're dealing with. Um, and then you mentioned yeah. um, other personality disorders like the borderline. So mm -hmm. I know that could cover a broad range of things, um, but how would this typically present in a patient? What, the borderline personality yeah. traits? Yeah. So that's, that, I mean, it, it presents in terms of like, again, endearing patterns of unhealthy behavior, unhealthy relationships, unhealthy self-care, um, you know, it, you know, just to kind of stay focused on the NPD, you know, that, like you said, that can take a whole nother cast of, of um, you know, explaining the, the borderline personality trait, because again, there are different enduring patterns with that as well. Um, you know, especially when in terms of like self or self-esteem, you know, senses of failure and defectiveness and lots of overcompensatory behaviors. So, um, each personality disorder has its own set of characteristics, and that one is pretty complex as well. I would imagine, and I can imagine we can probably discuss all we want to talk about on these topics in just the time we have here together. But so I, I appreciate your, your thoughts there. And from our standpoint, you know, in our field, you know, I know we're in different worlds because you're a clinician, and then I'm, of course, trying to discuss documentation and, and risk adjustment that I do from an insurance standpoint, but when they do meet, when we have to look at those things, what we're interested in um, in our field is understanding the, the risk to society, um, mm -hmm. the cost that it's going to take to, maybe if we were gonna build insurance for something, if we have to do that, what's the cost that's gonna take? And then the yeah. social yeah. determinants of health, we're always concerned about that. Um, yeah. How yeah. is, what social factors can come into play that can affect their health and that contribute to these conditions because in the risk adjustment world that we are in, um, we have to say, okay, this risk adjusts because these are the risks to maybe society or that person, if they don't get the needed help that they could escalate or this could happen. So what are some of the risks to themselves or to society that could be involved in these conditions? I think risk to self, we'll just start there. I mean, it's, it's general, it's unhappiness, you know, it's loneliness. It's, you know, a lot of times these individuals will come into session, not because of their own volition, but because, you know, their children can't stand them and won't talk to them. You know, their spouse or partner wants to leave them. They've gotten reprimanded at their job for, you know, not being a team player and they're getting written up or, you know, or, you know, they're, they're isolating and, because you know they just 
you know, there's something wrong with everybody else. And so there's a lot of, you know, just sadness there. There's a lot of loneliness, there's unhappiness, um, isolation. And, you know, we all know the effects of like depression and anxiety and just poor mental health, you know, on our physical health. So, you know, individually, these, these folks are really suffering and they're, and they're really being challenged and they need help. Um, and really what they need is a lot of empathy, which is sometimes really difficult to give them. Um, and then in terms of what was the other piece of this was the, the question to what community, the effect on yeah, community, community the, how that affects people in the community. I mean, obviously we can understand how it affects the family, but what risks yeah. or social factors can now affect them in their daily lives at work or different things. I mean, work productivity, you know, turnover, I mean, looking at it from that perspective, um, you know, there's sometimes there's an increase in substance use and alcoholism, which ultimately it puts a burden on our medical system and care there. Um, you know, the family system, as you, as you mentioned, you know, that, that, you know, and working with and saving families and children and the effects that the long-term effects of intergenerational neglect or abuse that could take place potentially um you know that is a cost in the system as well so yeah there's 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 a few examples well that definitely makes sense and i i that's kind of where we're at here just trying to get your thoughts and your insights on on how we look at these things and i know that um, our goal here was to raise awareness on identifying these, you know, as a disorder and um, understanding how they seek help when they do seek help, which may at times not happen, like you said, until they're there and you notice those mm -hmm. things. Um, yeah. yeah. So what benefits do you think, if, if we could identify these more often, more frequently, could this have on society if more people were diagnosed and offered these therapies in a way that is conducive to that environment? Well, I think all the aforementioned, right, would would definitely be be benefited, right? Um, it's it's hard. It's hard to know, like, what is what are we dealing with here, right? I mean, the, someone who has an underlying psychopathology of maybe a personality disorder like narcissism or borderline or any of them that has now taken on a chemical dependency. You know, it's the chemical dependency comes first, and. You know, we're often not able to recognize that there's a personality disorder that's occurring. You know, when I see uh, families or families are referred to me from like an office of family court services, for example, you know, the, the relationship is already in such disarray that the family is now being dissolved because of a divorce and now there's or separation. And so it's really hard to understand, kind of identify that this is what's going on. Now, from like a corporate or type of um, working standpoint, you know, in terms of like human resources, you know, some ideas there that I've actually been formulating and working on is being able to be aware of, uh, you know, pervasive patterns at work that are unhealthy for the culture or for the for the the, the team, right? And to even have therapists, trained therapists there and available to say, you know, hey, what's going on? You know, things aren't really working out for you here at this company, or this has been happening. Um, you, you know, just to be able to have a clinical eye there to maybe even rule out or to, to help scurry them to, to someone that can be a more long-term type of um, provider. Um, so, I mean, those are some examples. I'm not sure if you had any other areas of like potential, if we could get ahead of and figure it out, but 
you know, a lot of these in school, actually, I'll answer my own question, right? Um, you know, in terms of like um, getting early medical care in terms of mental health care, you know, especially for adolescents and children who may be with families who are neglectful or abusive, or, you know, they have a history of being manipulated or, you know, there's this, these unhealthy relationships in their life, you know, early mental health intervention is extremely important when it comes to the development of, of NPD in later adult life. So if we're looking at prevention, I think early on is the better, but we would also have to be able to identify these adolescents and children in early life experiences like uh, unhealthy relationships that may warrant some like mental health care and some support. I 100% agree. And I'm glad you mentioned that because that's been my focus uh, this month because we're, we're putting on a pediatric conference um, next Saturday actually for uh, our facility. And it's one of the things we're gonna have a speaker that's gonna talk about um, some of the childhood conditions. Um, of course, autism, she's gonna talk about that. And she's gonna be talking about some of the uh, behavioral conditions that affect adolescents and children. But I think it's so important, like, I don't know if you've noticed this in your practice, you know, since the pandemic, some of the issues that our children are facing, because I'm thinking, you know, they're in these years, this is one of my, in my thoughts, you can, you can tell me what yours are, but me personally, as a non-medical professional, clinical professional, I'm thinking like my niece and my nephew, looking at them, they're in those formative years where being in public school is good for them. They're forming these relationships and, you know, learning to interact with society and if that's taken away from you suddenly, how is that going to make you react? And when you go back to that, how much have you lost? Or I mean, I don't know if I'm on the right track here, but maybe you can clarify. Well, early healthy relationships are so important because there are internal scripts that we carry with us later in life. And so, you know, when we have a community and we have a familial community, but also a community like our educational system, um, that's really important because those are those guiding voices are what we internalize. But then we also have to take a look at the uh, the other the environment in terms of like the other kids, right? If you're talking about uh, we're talking about being bullied or isolated and ostracized from our community, you know, whether that's even culturally and, and diversity or uh, because of our gender, you know, these these are these are significant issues that kids are, are facing. And obviously, and they affect us and they have long enduring impacts on us, our mental health, regardless of, of uh, personality disorders, you know, that it's, it's traumatic for, for adolescents and kids. And so, you know, that's, that's always something that's on the, I think, needs to be on the minds of like administrators and all that stuff, but also mental health and care workers such as myself, because I work, I do family therapy, I'm uh, attachment-based family therapy trained. Um, and so, you know, I work with families and adolescents and self-esteem is always a topic of conversation and, you know, being fitting in and am I important? Am I liked? Am I loved? Am I good enough? You know, all of those types of conversations, that language is, is really important because it, 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 it's how we identify ourselves. So, um, I hope that answer, I'm pretty sure that answered your question, but if I you want me to elaborate on anything, I definitely will. No, absolutely. That really just adds clarity to why we need to be concerned that, like you said earlier in life, catching these things if we can. It was funny. I, I was just thinking about how this happened in my own life because 
I think back, I, I experienced a traumatic event in the working world several years ago. And for some reason that triggered <laughs> the bullying that I experienced as a kid. And like, then it uh-huh. all came coming back to me all of a sudden, it was the weirdest thing. And then I started to remember the feelings I had when I was a child and you know, being made fun <laughs> of just, I just kind of yeah. think for so many years ago, got over yeah. them. Then my self-esteem yeah. started to come back in again. And like, so it's so true. And, you know, it's, it's something that can affect kids later in life, whether they realize it now or, or later. <laughs> yeah, you know, it does. And the interesting, you know, you talk about that life experience. The thing with memory is that it, memories can't tell time. You know, our memories show up in the present and go, oh, that reminds me of this. Yeah. And so then it's like a program that plays. It's, it's like, a, it's like a, your body knows what to do now, physiologically. You're, you don't have control of that. You know, you may even cope in a way or think about it in such a way or respond in a behavioral way that is very familiar to a time that was once upon a time because the memory is being activated and so is that coping response. And that's exactly what happens when we talk about like NPD or other personality um, disorders is that there's a lot of reactivation of coping modes, which is what that would be from a once upon a time. It's these scripts or also called schema activation. And so these modes, the way we cope are activated to really protect the person. But unfortunately, the way that they're protecting themselves may also be hurting other people and hurting themselves in the long term. A lot of us have healthy coping modes and healthy mechanisms, although they're very uncomfortable or healthy adult self comes forward and says, we can handle this. We know what to do. You know, we can calm down. We know we're worthy. We know we're important. We know we're good workers. But sometimes that's not always the case because that healthy adult, that, that's, that kind of nucleus of our healthiness hasn't been fully developed because really there was nobody to help us develop it. And so that's that in a short, succinct way is a part of the process of working with, with narcissists in my practice. I, I think this is all wonderful tips and just insights you're giving me and my listeners. So I know that those listening are going to be so, so thrilled to hear all these insights. And I was thinking too, like you mentioned earlier about some of the effects that, you know, some of these individuals face or they're lonely. And then that can lead to, of course, anxiety and depression at times. And that's actually what I was thinking about this month and next month, because April is stress awareness month. And I know stress can lead to anxiety. And then uh, anxiety awareness is in May. So it's like a perfect time to be discussing this, to be aware of these things, to raise awareness. And that's what we'll be talking about in the following episode. But I feel like uh, I want to just get a clinical um, view on this when it comes to how our body is affected when we experience stress and anxiety, just on a, an overview, like how serious is it if we, if it goes on too long? Oh, well, stress. Absolutely. I mean, you know, our stress response typically releases hormones and those hormones that are released are cortisol and adrenaline. And so there's acute stress and chronic stress, you know, and so chronic stress could be something is for some people as much as sitting in traffic every day for three hours, that's a chronic stress. <laughs> and so it really depends on the person's resiliency as well as the environment. But over time, stress has a profound impact on us. It has a profound impact on our brain it has a, an impact on our metabolism, metabolites in our system, it has an impact on our other hormones or sex hormones, it has an impact on our, di- our, our food consumption, our decision to overeat or undereat or sleep, 
um, you know, our attitude, our motivation, um, you know, it, it stress kills. And I, I, you know, I can say that with confidence, there's so much research out there that the negative impacts of stress. And we live in a stress culture, especially as an expert therapist and working in the DC location, it is a stress culture. I work with a lot of smart people and a lot of companies and even students, you know, it's, it, there's co- you know, the colleges and the universities, when the universities is, um, it, it's stress bound. And so, you know, there's a lot of ambition, but with ambition comes stress as well. And with these particular individuals. I would imagine, I'm thinking like just the, the, the kind of jobs that, that occur in Washington, D.C. that we know. Um, I can imagine that there's definitely some on my list that I can say would probably be one of the most stressful jobs in America. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I can imagine that um, you definitely have your hands full with some of those stressed out individuals. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I appreciate all of the insights you've given us today. And it's just an honor. I just feel so amazed that, that I get to talk to you. And, um, and I just feel like such a great connection we're making and helping people and it's a different level of, of education now that we can give to our listeners and those that are wanting to learn more about this field of mental health. So I really thank you. And for those that are interested in learning more about you, I know you're on social media. What, where else can we, we find you? Of course, I'll put stuff in my show notes, but where can people connect with you? Yeah, so my my web, my web website, www.paulsheesleylcpc.com, uh, and I'll spell that quickly, P-A-U-L. S-H-E-E-S-L-E-Y-L-C-P-C.com. It would be the best place to locate uh, material, previous podcasts, um, articles, as well as information about my practice and location, and as well as contact information. Wonderful, wonderful. And um, all my listeners out there, if you haven't read his latest article, it's pretty fascinating. And I'm going to say, I really enjoyed reading all of that about something we don't think about, you know, we, we have this stigma in our mind about those that are celebrities or high profile, but they're just people. (laughs) Like, I just felt like it was such a great article to really get us down to that. We're all human beings. We're all people. And we all go through the same emotions, no matter what our job is. (laughs) So it was such a great article. So thank you. Appreciate that. Loved your take on that and your views. And I think it's such a refreshing thing to talk to someone like yourself in the clinical space that has such a handle and understanding of this area. So thank you, Paul, for joining us. And we look forward to learning more um, about your about you. And then we'll keep following you and connecting, of course. Sounds great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for joining the Life as a Coder podcast. Please feel free to rate or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate that effort. It helps us share the show with other healthcare professionals just like you. Join us next Wednesday for another episode. We'll catch you then.